Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 9th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. Jeannie Clark's nickname is The Shark Lady, although she actually prefers to be called Jeannie. Clark is a world-renowned ichthyologist and has spent over 60 years studying our oceans. She's had her fair share of adventures from getting caught in the grip of a giant crab to being inches away from some of the most vicious sharks known to man. Clark came to the Academy in March as part of Science in the City's Girls' Night Out series. This week, we're playing her full lecture, where she delves into some of the most incredible sea monsters she's encountered in her adventures. Thank you all for coming tonight to hear about sea monsters. Monsters, you know, can be ugly, beautiful, huge, tiny, and I have a variety of them to present on the uh, screens, two screens tonight. I call this... uh, Sea monsters I have known because I personally have been involved with them. There's so many other wonderful sea monsters that we can hardly uh, include them all or even a fraction of them in a one-hour lecture. But I'll tell you about the few of my favorites. The first is up on the screen now, is a sketch from a photograph of an actual shark. That's exactly how it looks. if you took an outline of it head-on. And this is a, a little shark called Isistius plutidus, and it has the largest teeth in proportion to its body of any known shark. It's actually only about a foot, foot and a half long the most, but that's the way its face looks when you look directly at it. This shows you how large the teeth are. They go way back. It also shows you the big fleshy lips. And these lips work in coordination with the teeth. The teeth actually cannot be shed one at a time, as in most sharks. You know, you picked all these loose teeth up on the uh, beaches because they uh, shed their teeth pretty regularly, every sometimes every few weeks, but certainly every few months. So there are a lot of shark's teeth around when a shark has lived for 50 to 70 years. But this uh, shark doesn't shed individual teeth. It has to shed the whole row at one time because it comes out like a denture. The teeth are interlocking to give it added strength. So each tooth locks onto the other one and um, the one that we were looking at is, you can see that this closely related one, Isistius plutidus, has the largest teeth in proportion to its body, but there are only two specimens known. They're quite rare. The other one, Isistius brasiliensis, is known all over the world. It was first found off Brazil. It also has interlocking teeth and these big fleshy lips. What they do with these fleshy lips is that they, they latch on to their victim, leaving these 
round scars. In the case of this uh, small whale or large dolphin, it has um, almost a circular white scar on its body where the teeth have cut. Just the lower teeth now, remember. They bite in and then they twist, spin around, and cut like a cookie cutter. And then their big muscular tongue pulls back. Their big fleshy lips form a seal. And the tongue pulls back and pulls the plug out and leaves a scar like this that sometimes whales and dolphins come up. You may see them. And even some large sharks that have these little circular wounds on it. And it's because at night, when Isistius comes up from the deep sea to near the surface, within a few hundred feet of the surface, it gets to bite into whatever's around. Here's another small whale, or rather large dolphin, that has four of these marks. So they sometimes attack in groups. Another set of scars. In fact, most any dolphin or whale that's been out in deep water has these scars, old scars. These are sort of fresh ones I'm showing you now. But because the, the cookie cutter shark comes up at night to nearly to the surface, and then when the sun rises, it goes down into deeper water. This is a, a nice round cookie cut out of, um, I think this is a narwhal, and um, freshly cut, not, not much time to heal up, but some of the scars can be quite large. This group of sharks, Deladius, is sort of a medium-sized cookie cutter. These uh, sharks get up to about four feet long and cut, cut out large pieces. They're all found in the deep sea when they're caught, and they only come up briefly at night to feed near the surface, especially with the moonlight. Some sharks are so tiny that you can have handfuls of them in, in your hand. You can tell the, the sharks that live in deep water, they're very black. Here's, uh, again, getting back to Deladius. Notice what fleshy lips they have. That's the seal they form when they cut open. And here's the, the teeth again. The second row is coming up. They can't shed their teeth one at a time, and so a whole denture comes out at one time. Here's one of the largest of the cookie cutters damage on a, a narwhal up in the Arctic. And these cookies are eight inches across. So you can imagine what a nice big bite they take out of some of the larger marine mammals and sharks. The shark that does that is somniosis. He's the sleeper shark found in cold waters. But, and uh, they get very large. They get about 20 feet long. And uh, inside our submersible, the Nautil, we got to see one right outside our window come back down to the bait cage that we had set. And he actually, the shark just sat on top of the bait cage for a while before it shook it all up and got things out. That's one of the biggest sharks we've ever seen. Uh, it was as long as our submersible, the Nautil. 
Sharks are also deep sea sharks, are fished in Japan, where we went to study the great variety of them. And they are eaten, they considered very good to eat, both the, the flesh and the uh, liver. Here's the slices of sashimi, the slices of raw meat, which is quite delicious. We've all had some. And the raw liver isn't quite as appetizing looking, but it actually tasted all right once you got used to it. Uh, the oil in the livers of these deep sea sharks is very rich. And there's a, several companies in Japan that extract the oil and uh, sell them as health food products in these pills. It's supposed to cure everything from impotency to anemia. And uh, a lot of people take it, and a lot of the Japanese scientists take it. So there may be something to them. I don't know what the black ones are, why they're colored black. They, um, but you can see the imprint of the little shark on each black one better than you can see it on the transparent, oily-looking ones. Uh, David Dubelay, who was the great photographer who was with me in Japan, we did a lot of underwater stories together for National Geographic. I said to David, why do you suppose some of the capsules are dark? Because we tried asking them, and they sort of shrugged their shoulders. And he said, well, they're supposed to be very healthy. And I suspect that those are the ones with the prune juice in them. Another fascinating monster that we got to see in Japan was the giant crab. It's found only in Japan and is the largest crab in the, in the world. And its um, shell is painted by the Japanese fishermen and hung outside their, their huts, houses, as a sign of good luck. And these Sharks have been well, I mean, these uh, crabs have been known for a long time, and we wanted to find out what they really look like. They, they're good eating. They were first described by European scientists that came to Japan and found only the arm in the fish market. They never saw the whole shark, but the arm was so big, so the generic name of this is Macrochyra. They named it the large claw, uh, or arm, macrochyra. And they didn't see the whole crab for some years later. The largest of these crabs is mounted in a Buddhist temple that we weren't allowed to enter. But the second largest, the largest is uh, 13 feet across. The second largest is this one that's six feet across if you stretch it away, and it hangs where anybody can go to the office of Dr. Odawara, who is a, a crab expert. He has a fantastic museum next to his office. He's a gynecologist, and he has this, the, the second largest giant crab mounted on his wall, and he loved telling us all about these creatures. Well, we wanted to see them alive. We knew your chances of seeing one as big as the one in Dr. Odawara's office might be difficult, but we found out where the fishermen see them quite frequently. 
they sometimes call them dead man's crab because uh, when any body is, is lost or sunk, the crabs will eat it, whether it's uh, any kind of mammal or person. And they found corpses being eaten by these giant crabs. There's some beautiful Gorgonians that dive off the Izu Peninsula where these pictures were taken. Really beautiful, but we had to go kind of deep to find the crab. And on the way, we came across monstrous looking faces like this, but actually too small to worry about. Beautiful eels uh, that look monstrous, but unless you stick your finger right in their mouth, they won't bite, bite you, they can't see well. They, it's more of a defense mechanism. This one, however, is a type of scorpion fish, quite deadly uh, if you get several of its spines in your body. Evil looking face, but I think he's just defending himself in his own way. There are 13 poisonous, venomous spines on the back of each of these scorpion fish. So you have to be a little careful as you get down there. This monster is one we've been studying for 10 years. I finally published the paper a year ago on uh, the convict fish, Leucotenia, with the Pholodichthys as the genus. Uh, this fish, I used to see them by the thousands, babies swimming over the reefs. And once when I was going over to study some other group of fishes in the in New Guinea, I said to my friend Dr. Victor Springer at the uh, Smithsonian, uh, is there anything special you'd like me to bring back from uh, New Guinea? And he said, yes, no one's ever seen the adult of these tiny little convict fish. They're by the thousands wandering around the reefs, but we don't know wh where they come from and where the adults hang out. But if they collect a few in an aquarium, they can raise them to specimens all six or eight inches long, and they're quite beautiful, but they disappear, so they're not very uh, good uh, aquarium fishes because they bury under the sand all the time. So we went out to study them, and uh, we got some of the tiniest larvae, which look like this under the electron microscope, but they're really very sweet fish that uh, you can go right into the, these swarms of thousands, as I'm doing here, and uh, put your hand in. They don't bother you. They have no poisonous uh, parts, and they. we wondered where the adults were, so what we did was follow these swarms over the reef. We just see a swarm traveling, and then another hundred 200 meters away would be another swarm. And when it got dark, they disappeared. They went down into openings in the coral reefs that were very small. And when we looked inside, we could see a large head. And the adults are in there. The young come home every night to their parents. and. Uh, feed them in some manner. And we've been studying them now for 10 years. We think we have it kind of figured out how they, they do it. But the adults apparently never eat 
anything, but they take the young into their mouth and then release them. So the young are feeding their parents somehow, either with the slime on their skin, defecation, or what we think is more likely, because they go back as very plump little babies that have been swimming in the plankton all that day, and they come back with their stomachs full of uh, plankton. And I think they are upchucking to the parents when they go down into them, and then the parent releases them. This is probably the only known case in the animal kingdom where the babies feed the adults. I was at a cocktail party once explaining this very interesting phenomenon, and my, my son, I, w I was talking so much to, to people about the interesting phenomenon that I didn't get a chance to even have a cocktail. So my son kept, kept coming up and giving me a cracker with a little anchovy in it or something, and he said, well, that's not the only case where the young feed <laughs> their parents. We, also, because of the convict fish resembling very much the fish school that you see, or swarm, it's not a strict school. They don't form schooling formation like the um, sardines and mackerel. But they have these stripes, and they look very much, but this is not Folodichthys, the convict fish. This is a poisonous catfish. And it lives on the reef, and most everybody avoids this poisonous catfish uh, because the sting is really quite powerful. It could actually kill a person, and fishermen who catch them in their nests carelessly and think that they're the convict fish are mistaken by these spines going into them, and they can be terribly sick. And in a few cases, they've, they've died. But these... The moray eels have learned that these poisonous catfish will clean their mouths if they hold the mouth open. And that's a first. We're just describing that in a paper now. Poisonous catfish is avoided by people, fishermen who know. They, as soon as they see that thing in the water, they avoid touching it or anything. And that's what also protects the uh, convict fish, because otherwise the convict fish could be just sw swooped up all the time. But because fishermen and, and people that are around this area see this striped pattern, they think it's the poisonous catfish, so they avoid it. And uh, as do groupers and other predatory fish, they, they look at it and think it's the um, the catfish. So that's called Batesian mimicry that many of you may have studied, where uh, a non-poisonous animal mimics a poisonous one and is thus protected. So you never find the convict fish outside the range of the, the poisonous catfish because they're protected by this form of mimicry. This is a, a diver who sees a big group of these catfish coming along but he knew that they were poisonous, and his friend who was taking the pictures stopped taking the pictures. We would have gotten a good picture of these things that come real close, and they clean your body and swim all over you. So all these things are on the way down the Izu Peninsula to the realm of the giant crab. And here is uh, 
the specimen we worked with the most when we found it. The divers uh, called David over. He had his camera, and David had told me in advance, I want a good portrait picture of this. So when you get it, hold up his head so I can get a close-up of his head and yours in the back. So I thought I'll try to do that. Yeah, I'm sneaking up on one of these giant crabs. But when I got behind him, uh, he did a strange thing. You know, crabs have five legs. The, the last pair, they're usually folded up into their bodies and they don't use it. But this time, he, he had his front long legs out and the short back ones, he wrapped around my thighs and he got a good grip on me so he could lower his head and then David couldn't get the portrait. So I tried to lift it up lift up his head for the portrait, I couldn't do it. So I'd unhook one leg and then I'd sort of pull that end up and I'd unhook the other leg and by that time the first leg would be around my thigh. I never thought I'd get into such a position with a crab. <laughs> but we finally did get the crab to keep his head up we were running out of air, and David was telling me, hurry up, hurry up, we want to get these pictures. And I suddenly remembered that the Society of Women Geographers had asked me, they'd given me their gold medal, and they said, would you bring us back a picture from Japan of you with some unusual animal So, and show our flag? So I pulled out the flag, and I'm holding it up, and David's looking at me like I'm crazy. We're almost out of air, and he hasn't got enough pictures of portraits and but anyhow I got the picture with the with the crab and proudly showing off my organization and David got his uh, close-up portrait of the crab there's so many other monstrous types of sharks which I kind of specialize in uh, this is called Mitsukurina Nothing is known about this shark, except that it can lower his upper and lower jaws and put out the most formidable-looking teeth. There's never been one alive, and only about seven of them have ever been collected. And I was fortunate to get one specimen for our studies. <clears throat> the monster in size, the greatest shark that ex ever existed, um, Besides, I think maybe it's uh, some of the whale sharks have, have gotten as big as some of the extinct megalodons. But anyhow, the, we, we saw them, one for sure, I could measure over 50 feet long. And they're very, they're plankton feeders, quite harmless. The big ones, if you get onto their back, uh, hang onto them, they're quite harmless and they're not bothered at all. They just keep swimming around. I had a tour of a whole reef by just holding onto the fin of one of the big whale sharks. But the smaller ones, the ones under 30 feet, if you latch onto them, then they head down into deep water and other people can't see them. So it's best to just swim along with them. And I've told all my students, when you see a whale shark now, if he's... A, well, it's the rule applies to everybody. Just don't touch him. And we came across five little whale sharks that kept coming up to us like puppy dogs. And, and 
the you can see the students here are, are backing away so that they don't bump into these baby whale sharks. The, there is one, they keep them now in captivity, as you know, at the Atlantic Aquarium and in Dubai. And uh, this is uh, the Chiruga Aquarium in Japan on the island of Okinawa that keeps five whale sharks at one time, plus I think about three mantas, one of just gave birth to babies. The mantas, you know, with their long wings, when they're first born, their wings are rolled up and they shoot out like little torpedoes and then spread their wings. Well, they've been born in captivity. But we know that all rays, like mantas, give birth to young alive. But among the sharks, some of them give birth to live young, and others lay eggs. And they didn't know, no one had ever seen the, uh, a whale shark give birth to eggs or young. And, but one egg case was found off the coast of Texas uh, back in 1953. And for years, that stood as the only record of the reproductive method of a whale shark and they found this little nearly ready to be born whale shark inside this egg case. So it was put in all the textbooks that whale sharks lay eggs and the eggs then hatch out into young. And that's true of also nurse sharks. Nurse sharks lay eggs and then the babies hatch out. This is a, a bunch of um, 40 or more egg cases that we found in one big female nurse shark, and inside indeed were embryos. But in Japan, we went over to see, visited all the shark fishermen. None of them had ever seen egg cases or young. And then we went down to Taiwan, and the fisherman there said, uh, he gets the, these females with egg cases inside them. But uh, he thinks that the young hatch out of the egg cases before they're born. In Taiwan, they're charged by the pound of fish that they catch, they're taxed. So they never like to bring the whole fish in, so they sort of cut them up offshore or on an offshore island and then bring in just the meat. But this one fisherman said that he thinks that uh, He's caught whale sharks with many eggs in them, and we've raised the money to pay his taxes to bring in the biggest female whale sharks he could. And he brought them in. Not only were there live babies inside, not in egg cases, although some of the early stages were in egg cases, but there were 400 babies inside this whale shark, ready to be born without cases. And uh, that was the greatest number. We wrote that up in a scientific paper. And now we know that the uh, whale shark does lay eggs only as aborted, but that they normally would hold these egg cases in their bodies and then give birth to live young and in the greatest number known for any shark. The other great 
shark, as you could call a sea monster, is like the whale shark, completely harmless. It's also a plankton feeder, and that's the basking shark. And we've had wonderful dives with basking sharks and the so-called megamouth shark, another plankton feeder that gets to be quite large, about 30 feet long. And here we are dissecting the first female. Uh, that's Jose Castro, center back row next to me, and uh, a number of other famous Japanese scientists that all came to dissect the first female megamouth, a deep sea shark that obviously was a plankton feeder, but nobody knew whether it gave birth to young or laid eggs. And uh, we thought that this was such a big female, surely she was ready to reveal how they have their young. But they were all anxious to dissect the shark, and they had photographers and all to see the dissection of the first female megamouth. But I said, just let me put my fingers in her cloaca. And when I reached into the part where all sharks have internal fertilization. The male clasper would insert its clasper into the female and ejaculate the sperm in it, but the female was still a virgin. There wasn't an opening large enough. So I said, there's not going to be any babies in here. Uh, and we opened it, and indeed there weren't. There were just lots of eggs being ovulated. Perhaps one of the most famous of the sea monsters, especially in the shark world, is the great white shark. And I've gone on a dozen expeditions or more to study these sharks in a series of articles for National Geographic. And uh, this is one of David Dublay's pictures taken just off the back of our boat of a beautiful white shark coming up. They don't come up to the boat like this for nothing. You've got to throw some chum out for them, bring them in. And uh, they, there's a place called the Neptune Islands in southern Australia where there are really a lot of these uh, white sharks. And they come around to eat the sea lions. And the sea lions often have scars on them, such as this lucky one who managed to get away from the bite of a small white shark. Rodney himself is lucky to have gotten away from the bite of a sizable white shark. You can see the circle of the mouth around his, the scar on his ribs going up to his shoulders. And Rodney has never blamed the shark he said, we instigated them, we lured them in. Uh, he was abalone hunting when this happened and all that abalone smell in the water. And sharks come in, you just have to learn to, to work with them. The abalone fishermen sometimes wear little cages over their back because the sharks will come in and mouth and bite anything that is soft and possible food. So Rodney Fox has be become a great um, proponent, even though he almost died from this terrible wound when the shark took up a part of his body into its mouth. Luckily, he was saved, and he went on to be a proponent to defend the white shark and uh, 
take people out to see white sharks in cages. Well, when he first started to do this many years ago, Geographic wanted David Dubelet and me to do a story. And we went out and we chummed in the sharks. We had about six of them coming around, biting on the stern of our boat and coming up and looking so vicious, but uh, not, not really, they're just eating. They just happen to be very big. There's a characteristic of the white shark that shows up in this photograph. Many of you must know this, but from the center, if you count the teeth, one, two, the third tooth from the center is a little bit smaller than the fourth and the fifth. So this is very characteristic of the white shark. So if ever you're swimming in the water and a toothy shark comes by and the third teeth, tooth from the center on each side of the upper jaw is smaller than the fourth, you'll, you can identify it right away as a white shark. To go into the water, we had five big white sharks around us. And in those days, they only had one person cages. And David got into his cage first after he stalled quite a bit, saying he had to smoke a cigarette, then he had to smoke another one. Finally, he went in, and they drifted him out. And then I'm getting into my cage. And the white sharks were swimming around us, because we were chumming them in. We were putting out food for them. And uh, this one looked like it was going to jump in the cage with me, so I finally put down the, the top. And then underneath, it's, it's quite a, well, first they give you a, a blood shampoo on your hair uh, over the top to keep the sharks around. And I was first, first time underwater, David took these pictures of me. He said, you were kneeling instead of standing up and looking out of these openings where you can see them better. But after a while, I did stand up and get a good look at the sharks coming along. They came so close to the cages, as they do today. And here's David taking his pictures of white sharks around our cage. They come really so close. You can, once the head end goes by, you can stroke the body, pull the clasper really touch the shark. And sometimes the shark's head, I remember when I took this picture, the shark stuck his head right into the cage at the opening that seems a bit large. Uh, like, like <laughs> But he came in and I backed away from him only to feel another nose in the back of my head from the openings that go all around the, the little cage we're in. You can look right down their throat and I got this wonderful picture of a white shark coming up to David that I've managed. The Geographic gave me all the f film I wanted, the, all the cameras to shoot. And uh, yet when uh, this picture was sold to many places, they gave me the full payment. And I've earned about $20,000 on this one shot. And I'm not a photographer, but they, they seem to like this picture. Another strange creature, how many of you know what this is? This comes from an old Hans Haas, his first book, Diving to Adventure. 
when he saw this thing underwater and he didn't know what it was and he defied anybody to identify it. said it was moving through the water and had a glow to it. And uh, many people saw this picture and even agreed that they'd seen smaller or larger objects like this swimming through the water, but that they couldn't identify it. And uh, photographers have taken pictures of pieces of these smaller ones when they come to the surface. An Italian photographer asked me to identify this for him. He took his favorite model out to pose with it, and it was constantly called a mystery of the sea, a sea monster that can get very long. Has anyone guessed it yet? One diver actually went in through the, the center of this thing. It, the center is hollow, and he could feel the pulsation of the, what he said was breathing. And I saw, I'm here with a small piece of one that came up. And they are known, they are, there's, it's a colonial tunicate that forms a body called pyrosoma. Pyro meaning uh, fire, soma body, fire body, because at night this thing is bioluminescent. And this was a night picture taken by Marjorie Bank small ones, but very big ones had been found. And we were diving in a submersible down around 2,000 feet off the coast of Bermuda when we saw an entire one. It wasn't a large one, but this was a mouth end moving, and then the uh, tail tapered off, and we realized what it was at the time. The, even the other scientists said it's some mysterious luminescent monster from the deep. But this thing was actually, the mouth part was moving. And pyrosoma is actually a colonial animal. It's made up of many salps that are, uh, form a, a big colony. It's hollow. Divers have swum through the big ones. You can swim through and you can feel the the flagelli beating as, as it moves this an colonial animal through the water. It's quite a fantastic monster. And if you can imagine back in the old days when sailors went to sea and saw things like this, which they know gets to be up to 80 feet long, luminescent in the sea at night, uh, even though they've come up from their natural depth, which is much deeper, but they occasionally come up. You can certainly see the origin of some of the wild sea, sea monster stories. Now I'd like to show, if I can get this thing to go to the video I think will come on next, is um, one of the, the most beautiful monsters I've ever seen under sea. Uh, we, it was on my deepest dive to 12,000 feet inside the submersible. And I th knew that the hooded octopus only gets to uh, live in depths below six to 8,000 feet. And I thought, oh, I hope that I'll get to see a hooded octopus. So when, when our submarine settled on the bottom and I looked out, the very first thing I saw sitting out there was a hooded octopus. And uh, Emery Christos has lent me his film of the a beautiful monster, sea monster, 
as it takes off the bottom and uh, I'd like to end my lecture with that. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a non-profit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership or to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love any feedback you have on the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.